Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It's page 988 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I have three children, age 13, 11, and 9, and they are all amazing, wonderful, wonderful kids. <laughs> well, it's important I say that because, you know, pastors tell enough stories about their kids, right? So it's good. It's important that you, uh, you know, that you equal things out by uh, affirming them and saying amazing things about them because they are. And it's such a blessing to Wendy and I. And something that I didn't realize until I had kids was that, is that you mark the passage of time by your kids. So when we left Cornerstone to join the Logos Hope mission ship in 2012, Enya was five, Ariana was three, and Maya was one. We landed in Mactan Cebu Airport in Lapu-Lapu City on Mactan Island in the Philippines, and Maya couldn't even walk yet. When we left the ship in 2016 from Mozambique to come back to Canada, Enya was now nine, Ariana was seven, and Maya was five which is the age that Enya was when we left. Now, I, now as I l- look at them, I'm really blown away at how they've grown into these beautiful young women who love Jesus, age 13, age 11, and age 9. Maya is now four years older than Enya was when we joined the ship, which is incredible, which means that Enya is now 13. And here's the crazy thing, and I'm going to stop talking about you, Enya, because... Now it's about me, because I can still remember what I was doing when I was 16 years old, just three years older than Enya. I was, I was visiting my pen friend, my, uh, who I fancied in Croatia. I was going to college, and I was making friends with teenagers who were seriously making me consider opting out of society, becoming homeless, and hitchhiking to Europe. I dressed like I was homeless. Uh, my favorite band was Lamb Chop. I still, what, I still remember what it was like to be in love and to have my heart broken in two. It feels like it was yesterday, and Ennius just three years younger than I was at that age. And I've, I've, I've realized that having kids gives me a lens to reflect on life. Having kids has forced me to take stock, to reassess. Now, I remember Wendy and I, and I having a particular conversation more than once, and it goes something like this, and maybe if you're a parent, you can relate. So one of us asks, what did we do in the evenings before we had kids? How do we spend our time when it was just us two? And after racking our brains for a couple of minutes, the response is always, I have absolutely no idea how we spent our time. It feels like a haze kind of 
settled on that time in between us getting married and having kids. Those three years are a blur. It's like we didn't exist before having kids. Or if we can remember stuff, then it's kind of like this half-formed cloudy memory. And then the kids come, which happened to be about the same time as, as, as digital cameras became affordable on the wage of a youth pastor. And so now we ha- suddenly have all these photos and images and videos. We have all this evidence of life after kids. And if I could sum up life after kids in one phrase, it would be this. My life is not my own. Not in a good Christian Jesus way, you know, but in a reality way, my life is not my own. So life prior to kids, I, I had a life, but I had no memory of that life. And then life after kids is, I have no life. And of course, I'm joking. But in reality, new life changes everything. New life changes everything. Sorry, baby. Okay, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I have a baby, not a real one. I'm trying to get him or her to sit up on my preaching table. So, you know, if you think about it, everything changes for the baby. From the womb to the big wide world. There's sights and sounds, there's noises and smells, there are sensations, there are experiences. It's all new and it's all overwhelming. And it takes time for for the new baby to get used to this new life because it is, as we see on the slide, a brand spanking new life. But it also changes for those around the baby. They are forever changed by this life that suddenly comes into their world, turns it upside down, and ruins it all in a good way. And uh, John, in our passage today in 1 John 5, likens the start of our spiritual journey to new birth, the start of this brand spanking new life. Now, during Advent and and during Christmas, we focus on the birth of a baby, a new life that we believe changes absolutely everything, and his name is Jesus. Um, Isaiah 7.14 tells us this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So from the moment of Jesus' birth onwards, we as humans can now say, Emmanuel, that God is with us. And, this, and, and the birth of this baby Jesus has the potential to change everything for you because it was the start of a rescue plan that God put into place to take care of your sin problem and to reconcile yourself to him, as we heard about last week. And John knew from firsthand experience that encountering Jesus is the most transformative, life-shattering, amazing thing that anyone can experience. So if you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and see what John says about encountering the real Jesus. 1 John 1, verse 3 says this, uh, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, 
so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And so Advent and Christmas was never supposed to be about this long-distance memory of the birth, birth of a baby in Palestine, uh, that Christmas is, is all about this brand-spanking new life that erupts in you. So you go through a spiritual uh, birth canal into a new life. You fill your spiritual lungs for the first time. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you have God's lifeblood coursing through your veins. You have life. Amen? And verse 15 of 1 John 4 says this, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God... God lives in them, and they in God. Now, when you read that, 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 that should make you stop. That, that should make you um, almost have a gasp of, of shock. Because it says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, it says that God lives in them, and they in God. You try to picture how that looks. You're in God and God is in you. How does that even work? And this brings us to our passage this, this morning, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, that says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, friends, this isn't just a nice little saying that evangelical Christians like, like to say. This is John trying to capture an absolutely mental, spiritual reality as succinctly as he can. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, we should be shouting that when we read it because how the logic goes is this. If I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God to deal with my sin problem and reconcile me to him, then I am born of God. I am born of God. This is brand spanking new life, not recycled life, not regifted life, not previously enjoyed life, but brand new life. Moving on. Uh, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Okay, and it's, it's, it's right at this moment that we have to put a big fat pause in our reading. Because we need to understand it right. Everyone who loves the Father, it says, and if you, you know, I would recommend, if you don't have a Bible open, open it now. 1 John chapter 5, everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Okay, so clearly, this is referring back to Jesus Christ. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well, because we've just been told that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the logic goes like this. If you love the Father, then you love Jesus, his child too. And this makes sense, and this is in line with Scripture. Hold on a second, because you can also connect that phrase, whoever loves the father loves his child, loves his child, with the next phrase as well. This is how we know we love the children of God. This is how we know we love the children of God. 
And so what, what this is saying is that this phrase, anyone who loves the father loves his child, refers back in text to Jesus and also refer, refers forwards in the text to us. And what this is saying is that Jesus is God's child and I am God's child. In other words, anyone who loves the Father loves Jesus and loves the people who are serving God. And I think why this is important is that this is John's sneaky way of saying that when you are born into God's family, you get the rights and the privileges of Jesus himself. So if people love Jesus, then they should love you too, because you share the family likeness. You are part of the crew. Jesus and you are blood brothers and blood sisters. If, if, if people love Jesus, then you get to get in on the action as well. Now, I remember watching cop shows, and uh, I, I think I mention them fairly regularly in my sermons, but, but something which features in the cop show is that they can tell how you are related to, to someone because of the alleles in the DNA. At least I think that's what it is. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus and you share allels in your DNA. And this unmistakably proves that God is your, your father. So if Satan was to do a paternity test on you, then it would unmistakably come back 100% that you are God's child. In God's kingdom, there aren't any bastards. Like I said, this is mental. So, we've established that to love God is to love Jesus, and it's to love our spiritual brothers and sisters. But this thing about love is that it's hard to really quantify. In fact, I struggle preaching on love because it feels like such a airy-fairy, you know, you know I'd rather preach on some good, solid theology about justification or sanctification or reconciliation, but love, it just feels so fluffy and airy-fairy. It's, it's, it's hard to really nail down um, how much you love someone. So how do you know how much love you have for God's children? Because there are days I know that I like my brother in Christ, and there are days that I know that I don't like my brother in Christ Usually, if he's offended me, then he's on the naughty list. My point is that I know when I like someone and when I don't, but how do I know when I love someone? And I don't mean in a romantic or a sexual way, but in a sibling way, in an agape way. Okay, so let's make this absolutely practical. Let's say that there is a fellow believer that you really don't like that you would say that there's no love lost between the two of you. Maybe they said something to you or they did something to you and you've written them off and now you're kind of feeling, feeling bad about this. You're feeling justified about it, but you're, there's also this kind of sneaking suspicion that maybe everything isn't as right as it ought to be. And maybe this is, you know, the Holy Spirit um, whispering into your ear. You, you know that you're not supposed to be feeling like this what do you do? How can you get back to that place where you can say with all sincerity that you love them? 
Well, John in this passage gives us two, two pointers. And that if we follow them, then we will end up in this place where we can say with all sincerity that we love our brother or sister once again. And what's interesting about it is that neither of these pieces of advice have anything to do with the individual. So the first instruction is this, and we see this in verse 2. Okay, it says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. And the first pointer is this, love God. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God. So the first pointer is love God. So the word of advice here is that when you're feeling out of sorts with someone, don't fixate on the situation. Instead, look to God. Fall in love with him again. Remind yourself why God is infinitely lovable and always worthy of your worship. You, you, know, you, you have to warm up your heart. You have to wake up your heart. You, know, you cannot rely on your feelings. You have to help your feelings match with reality. So don't start with the broken relationship. Instead, start with God himself. And secondly, in verse 2, once again... What does it say? It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. Second pointer, by carrying out his what? His commands. In other words, live a life of obedience. Live a life that's based on the principles of God's word. Know his word and live it. Memorize it and act it out in your life. In fact, here's a promise for you. If you're regularly reading God's word and meditating on it with a determination in your heart to respond in obedience, then God will not be silent. Your times with him will take on a whole new meaning. And this, and this book, this Bible, will be like a treasure trove. It will be absolutely precious to you. You will want to open it and, and read it. So this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and by carrying out his commands. And if we're doing that, if we're focusing on these two things, not focusing on loving our neighbor, but focusing on these two things, if we do them, then we will be so overwhelmed with the love of God and the beauty of his law and the things that he's asking us to do that we will be so eager to please him and to serve him and to live in a way that pleases him that loving the children of God will take care of itself. And then the Bible says this in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And so when we do what God asks us to do, it's another way of us saying to God, I love you. Friends, there is no gap in between these realities of loving God and of obeying him. There is no division. There is no split there. In fact, if, if we were to word this reality in the negative, we would say this, you cannot say that you love God If you're living in conscious disobedience. And that for me is like a knife into my chest. Because there are many times when I claim to love God. But I know actually that I'm harboring secret sins. Or I know that God is calling me to do something. And I'm refusing him. And this life 
where we say that we love him, but we aren't really obeying him. This is a life that is at war with itself. This is a Romans 7 life. Because a person who says that they love God is a person who obeys God. Now, I wonder, hearing that, how, 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 how many of you have this internal kind of conversation going on right now? Um, I know that God is speaking to me about something, and I know right now that I'm holding out on him, and I know that I'm refusing to, you know, to do what he asks, but what he's asking me to do is too hard, it's impossible, God is not being fair in asking that of me. If you're having that conversation going on inside, then you need to read verse 3 of 1 John 5. Because it says this, this is love for God to keep his commands and, and his commands are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. And in this verse, I hear echoes of Matthew chapter, chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. And turn with me there. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, where Jesus himself says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is nothing, not a thing that's more cumbersome and more overwhelming than a, a troubled conscience. So if God is speaking to you and you're ignoring him in, in unrepentance, then you are resigning yourself to a future of internal strife and you're resigning yourself to a peaceless spirit that never is at rest. Because a spirit that is out of sync with its creator is a spirit that is out of sync with itself. And this spirit, this soul, this person will never find peace. But you should take heart. Because if God is still speaking to you about it, and he's prompting you towards repentance, then it's a sign of his grace that he's not finished with you yet. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says this, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. What an amazing verse. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But often we, you know, we don't hear the next few words uh, where Isaiah says, but you would have none of it. So if you're struggling with unconfessed sin, then I would encourage you to read Psalm 32. Make a note of it. Read it and pray it and worship through it. Allow Psalm 32 to lead you back to God. It says, For day and night your hand was, was, was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. God will not leave you alone until you get right with him. But then the result of confession and repentance is verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. And I wonder how many of you don't enjoy worship music or singing songs, singing hymns, because things aren't right between you and the Lord. So love for God is keeping 
his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls and your tired, weary, exhausted, mid-advent, looking forward to Christmas, shopping crazy, everything going mental. Soul needs rest. And once your soul finds rest, it also finds, finds victory. Verse 3, and his commands are not burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone born of the world, uh, born of God, overcomes the world. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And I want to say a big amen and a hallelujah to that. Because when you were born into God's family, not only are you a brother of Jesus with access to the same rights and privileges that Jesus enjoys, you're also born as an, an overcomer. You may feel like a Gideon, fearful and cowering, avoiding the things in life that cause you stress. You might be steering clear of that broken relationship like, like it's the plague. This might be, be how you feel, but when God comes to you like he did to this fearful man, Gideon, in Judges 6 verse 12, God says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Are you kidding me? Mighty warrior, overcomer of the world. You don't know my life. You cannot be serious. But remember, 1 John 4 verse 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Remember 1 John chapter 3, 20, if our hearts condemn us we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything all those things in your life that all those secret sins he knows it and God is greater than your heart and he knows everything God's commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world now, not, now, when we read that verse, it's not saying might overcome the world. It's not saying has a, a, a fairly good chance of overcoming the world, not has a 70% chance of over, overcoming the world. It's not even saying will overcome the world. But what 1 John 5 tells us is that anyone born of God has overcome the world. And why is this? Because we are in Christ because we are in God's family and Christ has already overcome the world. Which means that in God, we, we are guaranteed this victory. It's ours for the taking. And as we look to him and love him, we will find out that his commands are not burdensome because we are God's offspring, because we have his blood pumping in our veins, because we have the DNA of the original overcomer. Friends, I... You know, as I read this, I just want to keep on going. I just want to keep on rolling these truths around in, in, in my mind and in my mouth because there's so much amazing truth here in these verses that we all have to hear. Verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so there are some of you right here, right now, who aren't overcoming the world because 
you don't believe in the right stuff. And here, John, John brings us right back to square one. Because verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And now verse 5 brings us back full circle. Who, who, who overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if I was to summarize our message this morning, it would be something like this. Right belief, verse 1a leads to right relationship, verse 1b, which leads to right affection for God and others, verse 2, which leads to right action or obedience, verse 3, which leads to the right outcome, verse 4 and 5. Let me say that again. Right belief leads to right relationship, which leads to right affection, which leads to right action, which leads to the right outcome. And this process can be you can use it in, in whatever circumstance you are in, whatever situation in your life. If you're, if you're experiencing wrong thinking in your life or a sin that you cannot seem to shake or an area of brokenness or hurt, it starts with right belief, having your head screwed on right. It's got to start with the message of the gospel. Because these, verse, these, these, these five verses, it's, it's like a gospel sandwich. You know, that, you know, you have the bread, which is the gospel, in verse 1, and then you have the bread, which is the gospel, in verse 5, and then, and then you have all of the filling, all of the yummy stuff there, but it needs to have the gospel all around it. It, it has to be your, your start and your finish, your first word and your last. This knowledge of chapter 4, verse 10, that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And knowing and trusting and believing what God says about himself and you and the world is where it all starts. Where we go wrong, okay, is when we try to start with the right action. When we try to fix things without fixing our thinking first. When we start with obedience without having laid the foundation of, of right belief, right relationship, and right affection. When we do that, then we're building a tower with no foundation, and it will fall. But when we understand that in Christ we are born again, that all things are new, that our past sins and failures and evil was not carried with us into this new, new life, that gospel belief is the rock-solid foundation that in Jesus we have a brand-spanking new life. And that guilt and that shame of our pre-Jesus life will, will start to fade. Our, our memory of it will start to lose its sharp edges because your new reality that you are living in is this brand-spanking new life. Now, there are some of you here, here today who are not born again Simply put, you do not know what it is to have a brand spanking new life in Jesus. You are still working on the old operating system, and your system keeps on crashing. You are a Windows 95 in a Windows 10 world. You need a new operating system. You need to become part of God's family. You need to experience what it is to live a burden-free life of loving obedience. You need to know that freedom from having to figure out life all on your lonesome. And you know this. You know that unless you let God in and allow him to take over, then nothing will change. 
No amount of wishful thinking or self-help or trying hard or support groups will ever change this fact that you need God, that you need to experience his easy yoke and his light burden, that you need to come to the end of yourself and give it all to him. And then there are some of you here today who are born again, but you don't really remember it. And you've been acting like and looking like and living like the world. It's not how you started. It was just a little bit of a compromise here and a little bit of a lowering of the guard there. But then before you know it, you've got more, in the world, more of the world in you than you have of God. You've abandoned that calling that God has placed on your life. You and God, in a sense, have, 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 have parted ways. He's, he's doing his thing and you're doing your thing. You've learned to ignore your conscience. You've learned to lock it up in the attic, but still your conscience is there and still it knocks and it knocks and it won't leave you alone. You've sent Jesus to his room and you've told him not to come out until he's learned his lesson. And meanwhile, sin is running rampant around your house. Sin is running your life. Sin is ruining your life. Friend, if this is you, then you need to remember that everyone born of God overcomes the world. You need to remember that if only you you were to let him, God would come to you and say, God is with you, mighty warrior. You need to understand this truth that love for God is to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. You know what is burdensome, though? The condemnation of Satan, our accuser. That's burdensome. The weight of a guilty conscience, that's burdensome. Being enslaved to sin, that's burdensome. Feeling the hand of God heavy upon you, that is burdensome. And so I encourage you that if this is you, that you you come to God in repentance and make it right don't wait because freedom awaits new life awaits